Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today we're going to talk about epiglottitis. Yeah, that's a scary one, and I don't think many of you have seen it because we recommend vaccinations against Haemophilus influenza type B. But vaccination rates are declining, and there's other causes. So this is definitely one of those keeps you up at night, prepare for it type things that we deal with in the pediatric ED. So let's start with talking about the epiglottis. It is an elastic cartilaginous structure that basically functions like the toilet seat of the airway. It flops over the trachea when we swallow, and just like everything else in the airway, it can get infected. So epiglottitis is inflammation of the epiglottis and surrounding tissues. This potentially life-threatening infection can lead to acute airway obstruction and respiratory arrest. Another technically correct and accurate name for it is supraglottitis. It's inflammation and edema of kind of everything above the vocal cords. So that's the arytenoids, the airy epiglottic folds, the epiglottis itself. So epiglottitis is technically anything that causes edema of the epiglottis. Most commonly, we think of infection. The classic cause is Haemophilus influenza type B, and prior to initiation of the Hib vaccine, it was a scourge on pediatrics. The current vaccine recommendations depend a little bit on what formulation you use, so you get three to four doses of the Hib vaccine at two, four, and six months of age, or sometimes two and four months of age, depending on the formulation, and then a booster dose between 12 and 15 months of age. Now with vaccination on board, we see other causes of epiglottitis. So bacteria include Staphylococcus aureus, including MRSA, Streptococcus pneumoniae, Streptococcus pyogenes, and other Streptococci, Neisseria meningitidis, and Pastorella multicida, among others. In immunocompromised children, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Serratia species, Enterobacter species, and just other anaerobic flora, along with the fungi Candida and Histoplasma, can cause epiglottitis as well. Viral infections may also rarely cause epiglottitis or enable bacterial superinfection. So you might see a virus plus a bacteria in those rare cases. So influenza A and B, HSV, parainfluenza virus type 3, EBV, HIV, and good old SARS-CoV-2. And remember, edema of the epiglottis is epiglottitis, and thus not all causes are infectious. So thermal burns, either from hot steam or hot liquid, e-cigarettes, trauma, or caustic ingestions are etiologies as well. So epiglottitis presents in two ways. Fast, classic like Hib, and a little more subacute. That abrupt onset and rapid progression, you know, within hours of upper airway obstruction, that's classic for Haemophilus influenza type B. In immunized populations caused by some of the other aforementioned infectious agents, the onset is a little more subacute. So young children less than five years of age may present with fever, strider, marked retractions, tachypnea, labored breathing, so respiratory distress. They'll be anxious, restless, and they'll have a toxic appearance. They will refuse to lie down and assume a sniffing or tripod posture. This is sitting upright with the trunk leaning forward, the neck hyperextended, and the chin thrust forward. Kids do this to maximize the diameter of their partially obstructed airway. They can have a muffled hot potato voice or aphonia. There will be severe sore throat with a normal-looking posterior pharynx, and cough is typically absent. 
Kids may have anterior neck pain at the level of the hyoid. And it goes without saying that these presentations are more likely to be seen in an unimmunized or incompletely immunized patient. Older children, adolescents, and adults with infectious or non-infectious epiglottitis will have severe sore throat, dysphagia, and drooling, a relatively normal oropharyngeal exam. Remember, you have to see the epiglottis to make the diagnosis, and comparatively less respiratory distress. This just has to do with age and airway diameter in most cases. The severity of the sore throat is often out of proportion to the findings on the oropharyngeal examination particularly if the patient has significant dysphagia and drooling. A similar presentation can be seen with bacterial tracheitis, yeah, but tracheitis usually has a prominent cough and kind of looks like toxic croup, and it's frankly terrible as well. Thermal burns from steam and other causes generally lead to a little bit more of a gradual onset of symptoms. You should suspect the diagnosis of epiglottitis based on the clinical history and presentation. Diagnosis takes actually visualizing the swollen supraglottic tissues. So if the patient has airway obstruction and respiratory failure or arrest, they need immediate airway control. Ideally, this is with ENT or anesthesiology in the OR or in another resource-intensive setting, like with a critical airway team. Don't try to force an examination of the airway, like no tongue blades, etc., on the unstable patient. The decision of when you get an IV should be as close to airway control as possible. Let the patient maintain a position of comfort with a caregiver close by. So if you have a situation where there is sudden deterioration with complete airway obstruction, attempt bag valve mass ventilation with 100% oxygen. The patient is still going to need intubation, which either proceeds in a very controlled environment via RSI, or if you're unable to oxygenate with bag mass ventilation, if the pulse ox is lower than the high 80s or falling, you're going to have to go to endotracheal intubation anyway. Generally, this is with rapid sequence intubation with a backup plan. Superglottic devices like the LMA or the King won't really be helpful here. So that means your backup plan is needle cricothyrotomy with transtracheal jet ventilation in children or a surgical airway in adolescents or young adults if RSI fails. So in RSI, I would consider succinylcholine as the paralytic. Even though rocuronium is preferred for most other scenarios, the shorter duration is advantageous if you fail securing the airway. Definitely size down that tube and have that smaller size tube readily available. Use a stylet in the cuffed tube and definitely use video laryngoscopy if possible. These superglottic tissues are incredibly swollen and inflamed, so a normal view of the cords is impossible. So you may have heard, go for the bubble. So this is the bubbling of air at the glottis through the edematous tissue. The laryngoscope should be used to directly elevate the epiglottis to expose the glottic aperture. You know, indirect lifting methods like tensing the hyoepiglottic ligament by placing the laryngoscope in the vollecula should not be used regardless of the shape or type of blade in the situation of epiglottitis. Fortunately, the actual opening into the airway, the laryngeal introitus, the lumen, is typically spared. I'm trying to give you some positives here. Now, if you're in a situation where you're able to oxygenate the patient, you know, the pulse oximetry is in the high 80s or above, mental status is okay, endotracheal intubation should be done by the most capable provider, ENT, anesthesiology, preferably in the operating room. Now, in the scenario where you have a patient who is able to protect and maintain their airway, administer supplemental humidified oxygen. 
You could consider racemic epinephrine, but this probably won't help the supraglottic tissues like it might in, in tracheitis or croup, and a little child may become more upset or agitated. You can also give steroids, but, but this isn't first-line therapy, and so don't delay other things in trying to get steroids in. Dexamethasone or methylprednisolone at some point are probably fine. Again, keep the patient in an upright position of comfort, child on a stretcher in the caregiver's lap. Uh, keep them in a setting where the airway can be rapidly managed with capable personnel, so either in your trauma room or resuscitation area. Don't image patients with severe respiratory distress in whom it will delay definitive airway management, but if you have time, soft tissue radiographs of the lateral neck, portable if possible, could be helpful. So your personnel and equipment to manage the airway should always be nearby the patient during any x-ray attempt. So there are some radiographic findings of epiglottitis. You can see the thumb sign, which is an enlarged epiglottis, thickened area epiglottic folds, loss of the molecular airspace, the distended hypopharynx. And again, when it comes to managing epiglottitis, if you've got a stable patient, they still need to go to the OR and get intubated with ENT and anesthesiology because you have to directly visualize that epiglottis to make the diagnosis. Now you could consider, if you are facile in this technique, a semi-awake intubation. An experienced colleague of mine suggests loading up a syringe with four milligram per kilogram of ketamine. You give an initial one milligram per kilogram and then follow that with aliquots of 0.5 milligram per kilogram until the patient is ready. You have succinylcholine loaded in a syringe and ready to go if it goes south. This technique has limited evidence, um, as does fiber optic interventions in the emergency department. After the airway is secured, hopefully in the safest possible manner, uh, it is wise to obtain surface cultures from the epiglottis, blood cultures, viral studies, and any other adjunct things that you need. Anybody with suspected infectious epiglottitis or supraglottitis should get empiric combination antibiotic therapy, a third-generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone or cefotaxime, plus something against staph. Vancomycin is preferred here, is the ideal initial regimen. You can always adjust it later in the ICU if they find something else. And speaking of the ICU, oh yeah, this is where patients with epiglottitis should be admitted. Daily examination of the supraglottis is necessary, whether the patient's intubated or not. That's how you determine if therapy is proceeding correctly. You can get complications like epiglottic abscesses that ENT will need to manage. And in cases of HIB, Intubation is generally necessary for two to three days, but this could be longer in other more indolent causes like strep pyogenes. Extubation criteria include resolution of the epiglottic and supraglottic swelling as indicated on laryngoscopy or demonstrated air leak around the artificial airway. Patients should have defervesced. They should be able to swallow comfortably. If the airway is still swollen at greater than 72 hours, you got to wonder, do you have the right antibiotics? Maybe the patient has an abscess. Maybe they have another secondary infection like pneumonia. So you may need to get ID involved, especially if the child is immunocompromised. Okay, so epiglottitis is a very scary diagnosis that I think a generation of physicians has not seen. That's not to say that you won't encounter it. And fortunately, it's rare but we're seeing declining immunization rates, so it is definitely possible. This is also one to prepare for, practicing not only the techniques of intubation, but also all of the scenarios and mechanisms around it. So the whole team needs to be ready, not just the physician placing the tube. And know how to activate your critical airway team, 
to get ENT and anesthesiology involved as quick as possible, and what your options are if you don't have them immediately available. All right, well, that's it for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast on epiglottitis. I hope that you learned some new things and can start to think about a plan to prepare for it if you see it in your department. If you have any feedback on this or other episodes, feel free to reach out by any means that you have available, such as email, messages on Twitter, a comment on the blog, a review on your favorite podcast site, telepathic messages, pass a note in class, whatever you got available, I'll take it, because I want to keep doing a good job of providing education that meets your needs. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at PemTweets if you still use it. Check out the Facebook page and read PemBlog.com for more great educational content. Thank you again for listening. And for Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.